Hello, everybody. Welcome back to What Happened to Syria. Once again, we have another outstanding guest joining us today. This is a gentleman who witnessed history multiple times in several countries throughout his long career as a Reuters journalist. Today, we are joined by Mr. Bernd Debusman. Hi, Sean. Good to be with you. Thanks for joining us today. <clears throat> no problem. More people know about the Assad family, the better. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Like, first, what, what drew you to conflict journalism, and how did that eventually lead to you going over to Lebanon? Well, what drew me to journalism is, you know, un unlike many kids, I was pretty certain what I wanted to do from very early age. So, you know, like, seven or eight, I don't remember. I mean, very, very early. I knew that's what I wanted to do. And this came basically, I think, you know, what inspired me on to enter this career was uh, an Austrian Czech journalist called Egon Erwin Kisch, who was known as, uh, who called himself the Rasender Reporter, the racing reporter, and he traveled all over the world and, you know, covered conflict and uh, in a really exciting fashion. So this was sort of my, this is what, kind of inspired me. And then I began sort of, you know, in a, a quiet career, so to say. I mean, I joined Reuters in, in Bonn. And from Bonn, I went to Vienna. And from Vienna, I went to... From Vienna, I covered the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia gave me a good taste, uh, even better taste. So that's what exactly what I wanted to do. And uh, I ended up in, you know, I came to, to Beirut from Cairo for a number of reasons. A, because I thought it wasn't clear at the time I sort of agitated with my bosses so that I needed to go to Beirut. Uh, a, because I thought it was a uh, a story in the making, the war hadn't started, but there was tension. And B, because I had been there before, and Lebanon is a spectacularly beautiful country. It, it really is. And almost everybody who came to Lebanon uh, during that time heard a joke about the country, which went kind of as follows. <clears throat> the countries of the world sent a delegation to God, and their spokesman complained, and I'm here on behalf of other countries, and we feel discriminated against because we don't understand why you <clears throat> gave such preferential treatment to Lebanon. It has everything. It has snow, skiing and you can actually ski in the morning and swim in the, in the Mediterranean in the afternoon. It has fertile soil. It has everything a country needs. So why don't we have that? So God ponders a bit and said, well, wait until you see the people I'm going to send to Lebanon. <laughs> and you can start complaining. <laughs> so, yeah. It's actually true that, you know, that it was sort of the, the top line of the tourism campaigns of, of Lebanon that you could, could actually do, do skiing in the morning and, and swim in the afternoon. Not always, but it was quite possible. So these were the two reasons. That is quite a country. So you had covered wars prior to Lebanon. Can you like uh, describe some of the places where you worked before you went to Beirut? My um, sort of war career really began taking off in Lebanon. I mean, before that, I mean, the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia was, you know, it was, it was a big deal, a really big story. And uh, this is where... I decided, yes, in fact, this is what I want to do in life. In Egypt, uh, 
Hamilton was quiet while I was there. Before that, I hadn't covered. Except for when I was very, very young, when I was a teenager, I had a bit of a, a, a bit of time in Algeria in the final phases of the war against the French. But that was sort of freelance stuff, uh, hobby stuff. I gotta say, I'm just astonished to hear you talking about these things. I've, I've never, I've never met somebody who personally saw or in, or at least covered it as a journalist. This is the kind of thing that today people only hear about when they read books, when they watch documentaries. I, I feel really blessed to be talking to you, sir, with all the with all the history that you've witnessed. All right, that's nice of you to say. So, I mean, you you asked, you know, how did it compare to other, other assignments? It, it was a completely different experience because, you know, I, I arrived in Beirut about two weeks before the war actually started. I mean, the flashpoint of the war, the, st the spark that ignited it, was an attack on a busload of Palestinians in a Christian area of Beirut because that was supposedly in revenge to an assassination attempt of a Christian leader, Pierre Schmeier, which wasn't true. There was no such a thing. He wasn't assassinated. He was fine. And, uh, you know, from that incident with the bus, it started from there. And crashes got more and more frequent uh, until, you know, the, the entire country was, uh, sort of, you know, was at war. And it was a complicated war because there were so many factors Lebanese factions involved and spent so many outsiders uh, interested in keeping this going. Everybody had Iraq and Syria and, you know, lots of people in it. the Gulf states. You know, they all had their own interests in there and they stocked it with money and weapons. And because of the basic problem of Lebanon then and still now, I think it's, there's a very rigid division of uh, power according to sects. I, you know, it has to be a Maronite Christian gets the presidency. A Sunni Muslim becomes prime minister and the speaker of the parliament must be a Shia Muslim. There's a pre-assigned number of seats in parliament uh, to 18 different religious groups and sects. As the war went on, most of these sects built up their own militias. So you had, a, you know, you had a country group uh, run by uh, by competing militias. The main conflict was basically between Maronite Christians and Muslims. And Palestinians, and uh, there was no concept, and there still isn't of the quote unquote the common good. It was just you know my sect, my group, before all else, and screw the country. Basically, it hasn't changed. I mean, the the original thing hasn't changed. I mean, more complicated things when I was there for. I was there for the first five years of the war. Complicated things was the presence of the Palestinians who came to Lebanon when they were kicked out of Jordan. And uh, in parts of Lebanon, they kind of ran a state of their own. And in southern Lebanon, each of the neighboring countries sponsored their own Palestinian groups. So anarchy is as close to things as it. At one point, it really impressed me. No end. Uh, must have been around seventy-seven. So the government had ceased to exist. And uh, near my house, there was a one-way road. And one day, I saw a truck driving down that one-way road in the wrong direction. And there was a lone policeman, unusual for that time, 
will try to stop the truck driver going down the wrong direction of the road. So the truck driver stopped his truck, got out, took out his pistol and shot the policeman dead through the, through the head and got back into his truck and drove on. And, you know, nobody, people saw that and I think from their windows, you know, nobody did anything because you didn't. You just didn't. Wow. So you would just like randomly just see stuff like that happen. Yeah, yeah. The unusual thing about the the, the Lebanese Civil War, which, you know, I mean, the, the first five years were the most intense, but, you know, then it dragged on for another 15, that uh, the Lebanese have a gift for self-delusion, which is really un, unusual. They never called what happened a war. We always called it less than one more the events and war just wasn't mentioned. And it was so bizarre the way people shut out what actually happened in front of them. I remember once I, I lived on top in, in a penthouse on the 14th floor of a building and the, that apartment had three, all walls, three glass, with only one solid wall. And it overlooked the port of where there was always fighting almost every night. And one night we were having dinner with 12 people, I think 12 people, diplomats, and fighting erupted and a bullet came zinging through the dining room, entering one, one glass wall and whizzing through the room, leaving through the other glass wall you know, glass tinkled down. And the conversation didn't stop. It's as the people just didn't react. I mean, I forget it because it's so weird. Lebanese never ever accepted that it was a war and they had actually, were playing a part in it. No, it was always the events, outside forces stalking it, stuff like that. It sounds like a widespread case of cognitive dissonance. Totally, totally. I mean, that happens often, but uh, in, you know, to a lesser extent. I mean, many countries are many have citizens who lie to themselves about what's happening. The United States probably being one, but uh, there it was uh, absolute extremes of not wanting to see and notice what was happening to them. And it was sad because you saw the society destroying itself day after day after day. Well, it was also exciting because, you know, <laughs> as I said, you know, it's, uh, it makes life easy the way I lived in, in Lebanon. I thought, oh, it makes life easy because, you know, all you have to do is, you know, you go to bed and sleep, get up the next day hope you survive, start again. And you don't have to bother with all sort of the crap people in normal countries worry about mortgages and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it all fell away. It was just, you know, get up, do your stuff, you know, drive to where the fighting is and, you know, do it again. So I found it, uh, it appealed to me. Uh, yeah, I really want to get into uh, what you just mentioned, dri driving to where the fighting was taking place. But but before that, uh, let's let's just backtrack a little bit. You mentioned that you you had visited Beirut before, like five years before the war broke out, and right. you, you saw signs that something bad was going to happen. What what tipped you off to that? Uh, when you talk to people, uh, there was no readiness to compromise or be tolerant to others. So if you talk to a Christian in the Christian part of, of Beirut, for example, you know, they, they were talking badly about the Muslims, they were talking badly about the Palestinians in, in West Beirut, and there was absolutely no, no readiness at 
like no shared Lebanese identity, basically. Well, there is kind of a the shared Lebanese identity. Is, I mean, the Lebanese do not consider themselves Arabs. Mm. They consider themselves Phoenicians, or descendants of Phoenicians, and they always consider themselves a cut above Arabs. And, uh, you know, they were really quite successful in many ways for a long time Beirut was a flourishing financial center it was a flourishing uh, let's say espionage center I mean it it, it just flourished and it was uh, it was uh, a pleasure very often to you know to be together with Lebanese because you were sitting you would be sitting around a table conversing in three or four languages and Yeah, it's so tragic how, like, the richest, most upscale place in the Middle East at the time ended up being fought over in that horrible Battle of the Hotels. Right, right. Imagine the most, like, upscale part of whatever city you live in, and then imagine snipers are shooting at each other from the Marriott and the Holiday Inn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Battle of the Hotels is something I remember quite well. I have a very, very bad sense of direction. Well, I am basically in, in watching where I've been living for some time now. But uh, in in Beirut, I knew exactly you know, where, where to go and where not to go after sort of getting by mistake into the middle of the of the hotel fights where I didn't want to go. I mean, I just landed there through, <laughs> through ignorance early early in my tenure. And uh, from then on, I studied the geography rather carefully. So that uh, was uh, Beirut becoming the only city where I could find my way without any problem whatsoever. So, so you literally ended up like right in the crossfire? Right. Oh, wow. How often do conflict journalists find themselves in that situation where they're taking fire from, from both sides? It's not infrequent. It's not unusual. I mean, in Salvador, we had, um, I had similar experiences and other people had similar experiences. But that happens. And there's very little you can do about it. So with Lebanon, I mean, you've got this case of a, a small country with a really uniquely convoluted political system that isn't proportionate to the population. It's just more so divvying up power between the different religious groups. And even as the population changed, the Christians refused to let go of what they had in terms of political power. The problem there was, and still is, that, you know, this apportioning of posts according to sects, according to religion, was based on a census of 1932, mm. which gave the Maronite Christians a small majority. By the time I was there, that was no longer the case. But they've never had another census despite many, many requests from Lebanese who said, you know, let's get this right. They never had another census, so they stuck with this 1932 proportionality of the, the inhabitants. And, uh, you know, they just didn't change it. Like those first two years of the war, from 75 to 77, what, what some people call the two-year war, when I first started reading about this conflict, I was struck by just how extraordinarily violent those first two years were, not only in terms of just the country destroying itself, but also the, the frequent massacres of civilians. Sheer cruelty and, and sort of on uh, a small scale. You know, one favorite thing of right-wing group of the phalanges was to ask a person to lie down, you know, tie their hand, and lick them up to a truck or or a jeep or something. Same with the legs. 
Oh. And then they would give the signal to the drivers, and okay, okay, let's go. So they would drive in different directions and tear apart the body. It really was quite uh, astonishing. As I say, this comes from people, you know, from who do and did appear sophisticated in many other respects. Knowledge of languages, knowledge of the world, knowledge of finance, you know, all sorts of stuff. But uh, no, the cruelty was just uh, breathtaking. Yeah. When I was doing the research for, for this, I, I watched a, um, a British documentary filmed around that time where they interviewed uh, Danny Shamoon. This was right after the, um, I'm probably going to say it wrong, this was right after the Caratina Massacre. Caratina, yeah. In the documentary, you can see the neighborhood in the, the aftermath of the massacre. It's completely destroyed. And this British journalist, I think his name was John Dimbley. So he's interviewing Danny Shamoon, one of the militia leaders. And he's basically saying, you know, how on earth can you justify this? You just see the visible, complete lack of empathy or human connection in his eyes. And he just goes on and on talking about property values and property development. It's one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yeah, I know the Shamoon family and the Jemaya family. Then you know sophisticated people. Did you ever get to interview Shamoon or Jemael? Yeah, 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 I did. This is one of the reasons why I think of, of, of all the places I've been in, I thought in journalistic terms and story terms, Beirut was my favorite because I knew everybody. I mean, I had good connections with the extreme right and good connections with the Palestinians. I mean, I really had good connections, good sources on all sides, including, you know, a guy called Abu Ad, who was in charge of the of a group called the Cedars of Lebanon, which was the most cruel and nasty group of them all. But, uh, you know, I got on with their leader and, you know, would have coffee or tea. Uh, I knew what was going on. I was pleased with myself. You know, that really speaks to one of the differences between wars back then versus wars today. I mean, back then, people didn't have social media. They they couldn't put their own message out. They had to invite journalists like you to, and talk to them. Nowadays, people can just make videos on their own, put out their own propaganda. And when journalists encounter them, they aren't treated as, as well as you were back in the 70s, I got to say. They end up being detained or beaten up or in some cases killed, like James Foley. No, that's a good observation that, you know, things were different in the absence of social media. Because, you know, yeah, I mean, people needed us, kind of, up to a point, as I found out. Yeah, it definitely was not risk-free back then. It surely wasn't. No. Did you also get to interview Kamal Jumblat? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, yeah, I knew... Basically everybody, I mean, everybody in charge of a, a, a militia group, I knew. You've described them as sophisticated, but could you go a little more into detail? I mean, what, what were these people like when you encountered them? How would they come off in a, in a conversation? As polished, worldly, as intelligent. Yeah, the, you know, was a veneer of sophistication, which... Uh, when you talked to them, though, were, were there ever any, like, slight hints or signs that these people were capable of ordering atrocities? <laughs> no one would actually tell you, you know, I, I really like murdering people. Right. But uh, they were painting their adversaries, and, you know, they were fighting even between between groups on the same side. I was fighting in between Palestinian groups uh, fighting in between Muslim groups, Muslim groups, or small arguments, but you know, basically over, over power. So no, I mean, no, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know that uh, whoever you talk to, whoever your team is, would also plunge a knife into somebody and cut out his heart, which happened. And you would be surprised later. I'm sorry if my questions sound a little naive or overly simplistic. People listening to this, a lot of them are going to know 
very little about the conflict that we're talking about, so I want to help paint the picture for them. How quickly did Beirut get devastated during the conflict? Lots of us have seen pictures of bombed out buildings. We've seen pictures of the green line, just hills of rubble. How quickly did it take for the city to become that devastated? Well, from the, you know, from a Palestinian bus, bus ambush until stuff really started getting bad, it took maybe three months, and then it became worse and worse and worse. And the thing there also was one of the more astonishing, you know, you, you could have a, a, a meal in a really nice French restaurant, and uh, two blocks down the same street, there would be a fierce battle, you know, machine guns and bazookas and stuff, and, you know, so parts of the city were operating normally and parts were not. And as I say, you know, just a few blocks from where you were having a good time, people uh, we were killing each other. Wow. So this was neighborhoods fighting neighborhoods, essentially. Right. Yeah. I've heard that in cases where Muslims were living in predominantly Christian neighborhoods or Christians were living in predominantly Muslim neighborhoods, that's when you, we tended to see these large-scale massacres of entire families. Right, right. And, I mean, that that mixture soon ceased to exist. And, you know, once, once you had the green line by the museum, <clears throat> the city was split completely. I mean, in Ashafia, the, the main Christian neighborhood, you know, the, sort of the heartland of the Maronite Christians, there wouldn't be any Muslim. I mean, Muslims wouldn't live there. In West Beirut, where the Palestinians basically were running stuff, and the, almost the entire Western press corps was based, including myself, uh, there wouldn't be Christians. As I mean, it was just sort of a ethnic cleansing, sort of but voluntarily. People just wouldn't want to be in, in the wrong neighborhood. And on the note of ethnicity, you mentioned earlier that some Lebanese people don't identify as Arab. They identify as Phoenician. But during the war, there were some like Arab nationalist factions fighting on the, broadly speaking, Muslim left-wing side, though, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If you talk to a Lebanese, an educated Lebanese, about the origins of the country and of they will always come back to the Phoenicians, look down their noses at, uh, at Arabs. There was sort of an inbuilt arrogance to not all, but many Lebanese. It really speaks to just how multifaceted the conflict was. I mean, in addition to it being a political conflict and a religious conflict, there was, I mean, it's not inaccurate to call it ethnic cleansing. This really was, there was a Lebanese versus Arab conflict going on. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. No, I mean, and the, the Christian conglomeration of Christian groups is called the Lebanese Front. So, yeah, there was Lebanese there. And many of the other groups had, you know, names alluding to, to the Arab world. Yeah, that right there is one of the big differences between the conflict in Lebanon versus the more recent conflict in Syria, at least for the early years. There wasn't really that same kind of intercommunal violence that you, you, we see in Lebanon during the 70s. No, no, I think the Lebanese war was, at least in the first five years or so, much more complicated than the Syrian war. I get into debates with um, friends of mine, other nerds who follow the subject that that is one of the most argued about subjects which war was more complicated lebanon or syria well i think you know i mean syria has became complicated in in the end but not not as quickly as lebanon and for similar reasons you know i mean in syria two outside forces have uh, stirred the pot of money and weapons and stuff but uh 
at Syria, at least in the beginning, was you know, a political thing. It was an uprising against a family, or family rule. And it was an uprising, really, against minor minority rule, because Syria was run and still is run by a minority group, you know, the Arab-Shia sect to which the Assad family belonged. So it was kind of a straightforward thing to begin with. Then it became more complicated. And in Lebanon, you also the the addition of Israeli influence. And yeah, I mean, now looking at the two, I really I do think yeah, Lebanon was more complicated, more more multifaceted, and it's more multi multi. Yeah, definitely. When I was reading about like the Quarantina massacre or the Damour massacre or Tel El Zatar or Sabran Shatila, there are moments in the Lebanese civil war that really, please, please tell me if I'm wrong. But when I was reading about this, I got the impression that some of this intercommunal violence, it more closely resembles that of Rwanda than in Syria today. Yes, I think you're all right. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I guess we can uh, segue now into the international involvement in Lebanon. Um, you mentioned Israel, but even before that, Syria also intervened in the conflict. Can you maybe elaborate on what were the Syrians doing in Lebanon, and how did that factor into Israel eventually intervening? Syria has been in, involved in Lebanon you know, forever, going back to colonial times in Syria and Lebanon were kind of not uh, close. And uh, Syrians had key positions before the war, even in the intelligence service, what they call the Dersian Bureau. And Syrians were running a lot of things. I mean, not, not openly, but uh, covertly. And once they came in, they came in in 19... 76 in force when 12,000 uh, Syrian troops came down the mountain with their tanks and stuff. And I thought, oh, that war is about to end, but no, it didn't. And then the Syrians basically ran what was to run in Lebanon. <laughs> that was an incident which I remember quite well. After I was shot, by unhappy Syrians. I, uh, I, I never kept, carried guns in all my, all my assignments, except for after their attempt to kill me. So I, I had a gun which I carried in a hollowed out Biden from, <laughs> from my, from my home to the office. And when I first got it, I put uh, beer bottles on the on the railing of my very very large veranda, and to try out this gun, I shot at the bottles, and uh, that started a major firefight because in the building across the street was a little unit of uh, Syrian intelligence. Oh. <laughs> who thought they were, they were coming under fire for me. <laughs> so wow. That was a lesson not to sort of target practice on my veranda. And was this before or after they had tried to kill you? After. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's, that's some poetic justice right there. <laughs> Let's go over a little bit about your reporting and how it led to you being shot a couple of times. So you would just like any given day, you just get in your car and just drive to wherever there was fighting going on. Yeah, yeah, basically. And so you'd have to like pass through checkpoints. Yes. What was that like? And, and, well, you you have to have the right uh, letters or the right uh, ID, and I had lots of ideas with me all, all the time, so. I didn't have a problem. And you you crossed the green line, or I crossed the green line quite frequently, which not many people did. This took you from West Beirut to East Beirut. 
from the Christian side to just Palestinian side. When, when you cross the green line, would you cross like on foot, like by car? Car. By wow. Car. Would anybody ever like shoot at you while you were driving? Uh, twice, yeah. Wow. But you have to drive fast and, <laughs> you know, and don't drive in a straight line, but veer from side to side. So that uh, happened. But uh, it didn't happen often. I, I, I crossed the green line at least once a week, sometimes twice. And that was a good thing, but there was no traffic. <laughs> nobody, nobody used it for, you know, I fear you mentioned a fear of snipers and stuff. Nobody was enforcing the speed limit? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you mentioned anarchy earlier. Today, when people talk about anarchy, they tend to talk about, like, Somalia, for example. But, I mean, Lebanon in general, but Beirut especially during the war, I mean, it is a complete and utter breakdown of law and order, a complete collapse of government. There's no other word for it but chaos. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a, yeah, an absence of governing or govern, governing force for whom everybody had respect it just didn't exist it all boils down to I mean you know you you look up stuff on, on Lebanon you got 500 different opinions as to what was what was really the main problem and I consider I, I in, continue to insist this is the apportioning of poets according to sectarian identity uh, was the main problem no, no, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going back to that, that point about the, the rigid enforcing of sectarian distribution of power, of posts in the government was the main problem. It still is. You know, people didn't want to be, you know, this is kind of similar in Syria, people don't want to be run by a minority. Right. And a minority, when I was there, when that war started, the Christians were in the minority. They had a slight majority in 1932. No longer, because there was an influx of Palestinians. There was an influx of people from other countries. The Muslims had higher birth rates. So it was out of kilter, what, you know, what they had put out in 1932. And based on that census, was just didn't function, was wrong. And people were not happy about it. Is that why people like Bashir Jamayel were so militantly anti-Palestinian? Yeah, yeah. One has to admit the Palestinians ran West Beirut and they ran it quite well. I mean, for everything, sewage, water, you know, whatever, Palestinians did it. Mm. But they also... Uh, felt themselves as they owned the country or they owned the parts of the country where they were. I mean, the state within the state, and, you know, that didn't go down well. And uh, I think the Palestinian leadership really never reflected deeply enough of uh, how, how they were seen and how they could sort of lessen the tension. Yeah, I, I don't know why I hadn't uh, connected that dot. I knew that it started off as a Christian versus Palestinian conflict. Yeah, that's a really important piece of information. How did the influx of Palestinians into Lebanon impacted the country and the, the demographics? If I'm understanding what you're saying, in West Beirut during the war, before they got kicked out, would you say that the, that the PLO were kind of like, they were competent administrators, but were also authoritarian in nature? Not necessarily. They were competent in administ administration and incompetent in understanding that their presence bothered people, bothered some Lebanese or quite a number of Lebanese, and they really didn't do much about it. Because they said, you know, our we, you know, our reason for existing is to fight Israel, and fighting Israel is, you know, it's best done from here, from the you know, from Lebanon. So that they made mistakes. I mean, I was uh, very pro-Palestinian because, <laughs> because I lived in the part of the city and I've, you know, 
and many Palestinian friends who I admired for their for what they did, for their intelligence, for you know fighting Israel. But uh, there didn't have a lot of empathy for people who thought that they were taking over part of the country. So they should have known because you know it happened to the PLO in Jordan. Same thing. These Palestinian friends of yours, did, did you meet them while you were covering the conflict? Yeah, yeah, and I, I still have friends from the conflict. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm not the youngest anymore. But, uh, you know, one, one of my best friends at the time was Rashid Khalidi, who is now a professor, or he's been a professor at Columbia University, you know, the head of the Middle East Affairs for... for for a very, very long time, and is really well known. So authored six really good books. I guess that kind of segues back to what we were talking about before we went into the Palestinians. So you drive to like these neighborhoods that were being fought over. What would you do when you got there? Would you already have like a contact there, or would you just try to just wing it and try to find somebody willing to talk to you? Well, many times I already had somebody there or somebody near there. Other times I just, you know, just go and talk to people to find out who's fighting who because, you know, it wasn't always clear. And, uh, you know, people went by and large were quite helpful. My Arabic wasn't good, but it was a functional, and we used to call it roadblock Arabic. So it wasn't difficult to get a story together. It was just dangerous. And in the course of uh, covering these stories, you, you started investigating Syria's role in the conflict, right? Well, I've written about Syria basically from day one of my Beirut assignment. Because, you know, the Syrian government and the Muslim Brotherhood had been waging kind of a low-intensity conflict for a long time. And uh, I wrote about this because... Uh, I had sources uh, give me details which deeply disturbed the Syrian government because they couldn't figure out where I got all this stuff. I'm just curious. I understand if you cannot answer this, but I'm just asking because it's been it's been decades. Um, were these like Muslim Brotherhood members living in Lebanon? Like uh, I know they had a presence in Tripoli. Yeah, well, there were Muslim brothers in in Lebanon, but I mean, they weren't they weren't very active. They were very active in in Syria. Right. No, the Muslim Brotherhood is sort of a pan was a pan Arab uh, phenomenon. The Muslim Brotherhood it was a pan Arab movement. I see. I, I'm sorry if I'm a little um all over the place. I just realized I, I forgot to ask ask you something I should have asked earlier. Were you mostly in Beirut, or did you ever get to uh, travel to other parts of Lebanon during the war? Well, no, I traveled all over the place. Yeah, I mean, all over. Yeah, I knew Lebanon really, really well. It's a really small country. Yeah, it's tiny. It's smaller than most American states, from from what I've seen. Oh, absolutely. No, it's a, it's a, it's a small place, yeah. From Beirut to Damascus, it's... It was just an hour and 20 minutes. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's a one-hour drive. Yeah, basically, yeah. I mean, wow. if, if he went held up at the, at the border, yeah, it was a very quick trip. Wow. I just find that astonishing because once every year, at least before the pandemic, I would drive for nine hours from Georgia to Florida to meet up with family once a year. So... <laughs> So the idea of going to another country in the span of one hour is mind-blowing. Yeah, and I mean, it's post-stamp-sized country, Lebanon. As it goes in the joke, it has absolutely everything. It's just the people um, you got to worry about. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. It's kind of a nasty joke, but, uh, you know, it's, it's been told about other countries, too. I think, you know, Lebanon I don't know how true this is, but I, I've read sources that claim that of the total number of people who died throughout the entire war, something like almost half of them were killed in the first two years alone. That's 
probably true. Not in the first two, and the first three, yeah. When the Syrians came in with 12,000 troops at, quote-unquote, at the request of the Lebanese president, who was a Maronite, to keep the peace, you know, to pacify all the warring factions. So, yeah, I think the first two and a half, three years were the ones with the highest casualties. Wow. Then again, later in 82, when the Israelis came in and bombed Beirut and allowed a really huge, nasty massacre. Even some within the Israeli government were appalled by what Sharon did to Beirut. I know Israel, and I think it's a really exciting country. But there again, I mean, people think of themselves quite often as above others and superior to others. And uh, what happened in Beirut in 82 was just, you know, just tremendous. It happened to people who should have known better about massacres. I'll segue in soon into the Syrian intervention and how they tried to kill you. But before we get there, is it fair to say that what happened in Beirut and Lebanon in general, were there any other conflicts like it going on anywhere else in the world at that time? No, I don't think so. So, I mean, as, uh, as complicated as Lebanon, no, I think at the time there wasn't, there wasn't anything like it. The more I learn about it, the more I keep coming away with the idea that this was a, at least for the time, it was a uniquely chaotic and horrible affair. It was, yeah. I, I would agree. I mean, horrible and sad. Even with the Iran-Iraq war going on and the Soviet-Afghan war going on contemporaneously, the fact that that tiny little country could have so much bloodshed going on is just astonishing. Yeah, 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 it is. So, as you wrote about Syria more and more, I guess, just to clarify for the listeners... What exactly were the Syrians doing throughout the war? Like, you mentioned that they portrayed themselves sort of as a peacekeeping force. Was there any truth to that at all? Well, I mean, one never knows what's in, in, in the heads of people, whether they meant to keep the peace in Lebanon or whether they wanted to take more control and more direct control of Lebanon. Who knows? I think... The idea, I mean, but then I'm, I'm very biased against uh, the Assad family or Hafez Assad. I, uh, I doubt that he was serious about making peace. I do think you know, he wanted to intensify and tighten the Syrian grip on, on Lebanon. That's another thing I need to ask you about. So when people talk about the Assad family today, we tend to focus on... Bashar al-Assad. How would you describe Hafez al-Assad, someone who was a journalist when he was in power? Could you just give us a broad overview of what was Hafez like and maybe what were the differences between him versus his son? Hafez al-Assad was cold, calculating, brutal, and uh, a very smart manipulator of, uh, of people. He arrived in power after years and years of military coups in Syria. I mean, Syria was a plotter's paradise before he came to power. And once he seized power, that stopped. You know, he made the country calm. He stabilized the country. And a lot of people, I think, were quite uh, grateful for that. You know, the, the instability that sort of characterized uh, Syria for so long, he ended it. It's false. You know, he did end it. People who were not uh, involved in politics did quite well under Hafez. And as to how he and his son differ, <laughs> the son learned at the sort of the feet of his father. You know, Hama in 1982 was a story that was known worldwide, but uh, there was sort of an uprising in Hama two years earlier in 1980, and I happened to 
had visited Hama at the time for no particular good reason, I think. And uh, Hafez decided that uh, he couldn't tolerate uh, anything that made him appear less than all-powerful, so he decided to wreck the center of Hama, surrounding it with artillery and tanks, shelling it for two weeks, I think, a long time, completely flattening it. The number of people that were killed is under dispute, but there were lots. Bashar was uh, 17 at the time, I think, and he was in, in Syria, and he sort of obviously learned a lesson from what his father did <laughs> by uh, shutting out the opposition. So going back to Lebanon, you were shot twice. Um, how did the first time happen? Oh, the first time happened, you know, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Oh. I mean, there was there was a night battle going on in the center of Beirut, and I went there thinking I could uh, <laughs> maneuver through all that shooting. I couldn't. So, mm. so somebody opened fire on my car and hit me in the hand. Oof. And it uh, wasn't serious. I mean, serious enough, but it wasn't life-threatening. And the, the second time was uh, just basically my stubbornness. After my Hama reporting, you know, when I went to Damascus from Hama, I was summoned to the office of the information minister. I was always proud to point out that his name was Kanda Ahmed, a, you know, a mixture of Arabic and Christian names. Mm. And he said, no, no, what you've seen, what you've reported there is all false. The term fake news hadn't been invented then. He said, no, but this is all, you know, you, you, you got this completely wrong. This wasn't uh, an anti-government thing. It was just a, you know, a bunch of criminals doing all this stuff, like looting shops and walking around with stolen televisions and stuff. And so he said, no, no, you, you got it all wrong. You really got it all wrong. We are taking a very serious view of this. We advise you to, uh, you know, tone down your reporting, which I didn't. And then uh, I went on a holiday. Uh, we, we had what they called Western Recreation in Cyprus every three months or so to get a little bit of uh, normality. While I was in Cyprus, the telephone rang and my number two in Beirut said, uh, we had a visit here from the Syrian Arab News Agency. And he said, they asked us whether we had any pictures of you. Mm. So the Syrian Arab News Agency doesn't carry pictures. And to my knowledge, had never written about a foreign correspondent ever. So my number two, a Palestinian, said, you know, you, you really should consider not coming back to Beirut. This is kind of, you know, my advice is to stay away. I thought about this for a few days, and I said, you know, fuck that. I'm not going to be intimidated by these people, and they're very unlikely, I told myself, to shoot the bureau chief of the biggest Western news agency in plain daylight. And so I returned. Nothing happened for a week. Nothing happened for two weeks. I was walking around with my gun inside the uh, inside the hollowed out Bible until I went to a party, the 40th birthday party, I remember, of the BBC Middle East correspondent Tim Llewellyn. And uh, his party was in mean, stack for him, basically the entire Russian press corps was there, and diplomats, and government officials. I mean, that was, you know, sort of a who's who in, in Beirut was there. When I left his uh, apartment building and got into my car, I saw a white car parked above mine, driving up very, very slowly until it was level with mine. And then I saw this long barrel of silence that come up three shots and the car went off. I got out of the car and collapsed and woke up in the hospital. Wow. 
and uh, it was, you know, the timing was very well chosen because everybody got the message. I mean, everybody who was there knew why that happened. So uh, it was effective because, you know, I called it censorship by bullet. It was effective. Well, the BBC correspondent left too because he got uh, threats that the same stuff would happen to him too because he had just reported that there had been assassination attempt on Afes Arasa and like that. So he left and the BBC stringer Jim Muir was still in, in the region. He left too and a fellow from the Figaro, Jack Stockton, left too having gotten the same warnings. So it was an effective exercise of uh, censorship. I should have, you know, looking back to this, when I, it, it was just stubbornness prevailing over good sense because there had been incidents before which made quite clear that, you know, the Assad government was taken very seriously uh, uh, reporting that reflected badly on them. Just, uh, I think, about a week before my thing, there was a Lebanese journalist, Selim al who was kidnapped. He lived in London. He ran a newspaper, an Arabic language newspaper in London. He came to the burial of his mother or grandmother. And he was uh, abducted on the way to the funeral sort of there's a very dense pine forest in the south of Beirut and he was taken there shot through the head and had his hand dipped his right hand his writing hand dipped into acid we had any doubt as to why he had been killed wow so as I mean you know there was uh, no reason for me to be optimistic but you know I was all stubborn what were the long-term implications of your your gunshot wounds? So you, you've been shot in the hand, in the foot, and in the in the back. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. The first, I mean, the first time, you know, wrong wrong place, wrong time. That that was the hand and the foot, and the the assassination attempt was uh, in the back. And the bullet struck a rib and was deflected downwards and came to rest very close to my spine. So close that the surgeons decided that would be too risky to try and take it out, so they left it in. Never gave me any problems, or not, not really, but in the first few months of having it, the bullet would make uh, airport electronic gates you walk through, and uh, it would beep in, Managua, in the Managua airport, and uh, the airport in Tel Aviv, it would beep. And it was kind of embarrassing. Take off your belt. I'd take off my belt. Take off your shirt. Take off your undershirt. Beep, beep, beep. Wow. That <laughs> <laughs> was kind of great theater for the people, for the other people in the waiting in the waiting lounge because it was a very very small lounge. People thought this was great theater. <laughs> beep. Go back. Take something off again. Go back again. Beep. Then in the end, I traveled with a, an x-ray picture to uh, convince people that I was actually not bullshitting and not carrying a hidden weapon. Thank you so much for coming on and telling us all this stuff. We've got to do this again sometime soon, especially talking about the stuff we couldn't get into too much, like Hama. Before you go, though, how would you say your career as a journalist covering war and civil conflict. How did it affect the way that you look at the world today? It's kind of a difficult question. A colleague of mine, who actually was killed in, in Salvador, he used to say that in, there, there was a whole group in, in, in Beirut who had been covering the Vietnam War, Southeast Asia. And this guy said uh, how it had changed him, he said, well, it leaves calluses mm. on the soul. I think it's quite an apt description. Sort of it. it makes you numb to some stuff that would totally shock and frighten other people. Yeah. 
calluses on the soul. Yeah, I have none of those, and I have description. I mean, as somebody who covered Lebanon during its civil war, somebody who witnessed and documented its collapse as a state, what is your reaction when you see reports of increasing political violence in places like the United States? How do you react when you see stuff like the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol? It frightens me no end. It, it frightens me no end because, I mean, it's, it's factionalism at its worst. It's factionalism really as it happened in, in Lebanon. It's a complete absence of any concept, the, the common good. The party or Trump comes way, way before the country. And it frightens me. There are quite a number of serious, not hysterical, political scientists who really warn of a, civil, a second civil war in the United States, which will be different from the first one. I mean, no massed armies confronting each other, but, uh, you know, kind of insurgencies, like kidnapping the governor of a state, one group tried and failed, but uh, you know, I think there will be similar incidents in the future. So it scares me deeply. It does. Would it be unfair to suggest that a, a future civil conflict in the United States, could it end up looking something like Lebanon in the 70s? No, I, I, no, I don't think so. I, 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 I don't think. I think it will be more like uh, it would be more like sort of a, what the Muslim Brotherhood did in in Syria. You know, hit and run raids and ambushes, little little stuff here and there. But you know, enough to keep the country really, really unbalanced. And I think, yeah, I think I'm I'm scared of it. I must admit, having talked to some of the people on January six out there. There's no way you can argue, there's nothing, there's the same absence of tolerance of any readiness of making concessions or hearing the other side, obviously fueled and, and accelerated by social media. Definitely. So then, let's hope for the best, prepare for the worst. <laughs> yeah, kind of have no other choice at this point. Right. It's a very valid question of yours. It's, it's very valid. And I say, I'm, I'm, I'm scared. I'm looking at January 6th and looking at the aftermath and looking at the rewriting of the history. It's scary. It is. It really is. I'm 26 years old. I have never owned a firearm in my life. I've never owned a gun. But... This year, in the aftermath of um, the January 6th insurrection, 2021 was the first year of my life where I started to worry that someday some extremist might target myself or people like me just for our viewpoints. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. No, no, I mean, it's a very justified thing. No, totally. Yeah. As an American, I have never had that experience before. Right, right. No, I mean, this, uh, you know, Trump brought in a completely different era. The end of conservatism in favor of authoritarianism. Yeah, and the end of any consideration of the, what I call the common good. There is none. There isn't. People just don't care. The United States isn't important to them. Trump is uh, friends in the militia. Uh, so very similar mindset, which is uh, particularly dangerous because this is, I think this is the only country on earth where there are more guns in civilian hands than there are civilians. There are now 424 million guns in the United States. It has only 350 million inhabitants. And that 420 million figure comes from, from a gun group. So it's... I think it's not exaggerated. I mean, at this point, I don't think it's unfair to say that there are a few individuals in Congress who are out-and-out out fascists. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm proud of it. That is so disturbing. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's disturbing that these people get elected. 
it's disturbing that somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene actually elected. She is an embarrassment for my state. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I know you got to go in a minute, and my laptop battery is about to die. Um, I guess the this the last question I want to ask you today: Do you see a way we could come back from this? Is there a way we could we could reverse the trends that have been going on in the United States? One can only hope. I don't really see it happening, but uh, you know, one has to be up, optimistic. I mean, in, there have been very tense times in this country before. I'm kind of a, you know, a child of the 60s. There you had uh, you know, Kent State, Vietnam protests, and you know quite a lot of violence, and an absence of tolerance. In the end, it came out okay. But this one, I think this one here is different. Well, Burned, thanks so much for uh, for talking to us today. No, you're welcome. I'm you know, doing, uh, doing this for a good cause. My son went to school here and to university and in London. And I find Americans are pretty ignorant on the whole of history, other than their own. We do know about the Civil War and 1776 and all that sort of stuff. But other than that, I mean, there's a, a really great well of ignorance. And what you're trying to do is a, is, is a good thing. Broadly speaking, there's kind of like two types of Americans. You have the ordinary type of American who only pays attention to stuff going on in the United States. And then you have those who are more internationally minded, who pay attention to the wider world. Those who have paid attention to the outside world, I find that right now they are the ones who are the most scared about the direction our country is going in. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Largely, it's a function of... Uh of education, of the lack of it. And I was always struck that one of, one of Trump's rallies, he said, uh, I love the uneducated. Yeah. Right? Yeah, for a good reason, yeah. Definitely. So there, we can only hope. In the end, I think it was Churchill who said, well, you know, the Americans do everything wrong until finally they get it right.